writers like philosophers, I think, or at least some writers, but I think all philosophers are striving for the impersonality and the transcendental <clears throat> rather than <clears throat> rather than being mired down in the particular and the personal. And that's why some of us are drawn to philosophy. It's an exercise of a kind of disembodiment where you're leaving behind a trivia and pettiness of a domestic life that's not in any way distinguished or even interesting. But you're moving to another plane of something impersonal where people who are interested in philosophy can talk about philosophical ideas. It doesn't matter that I have brown eyes or that I have some Hungarian blood or or some Jewish background, you know, all that is, is really irrelevant. And I think that's why people are drawn to philosophy. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 137 with my co-host Pins the Podcat. And I'm not supposed to play favorites, or at least I feel like I'm not supposed to play favorites. And so maybe it isn't fair of me to say this, but this episode was an absolute dream. Uh, literature is my biggest love, and I got to speak with one of my favorite and one of the most accomplished and enduring and respected authors of the 20th and 21st centuries, and that is Joyce Carol Oates. So Joyce is the Roger S. Berlin 52 Professor Emirata in the Humanities at Princeton University with the program in creative writing. She's written in a wide variety of media and genres from poetry and fiction in the former category to horror and gothic in the latter. Her work has also been adopted into various other media from plays to film. And Joyce is the recipient of two O. Henry Awards and the National Book Award, among many others. So in episode 137, this episode, Joyce and I talk about a number of things related to fiction and poetry. The episode is framed, I'd say, around Stephen Crane, who you might be familiar with from The Red Badge of Courage, but who was also a terrifically brilliant poet. And with him as our anchor, we talk about how literature might be seen as giving form on the page to life. How Joyce thinks about various techniques like repetition or the importance of the first sentence in a novel, which she treats along with the last sentence and the title as forming what she describes as a triangular structure. We also talk about our love of cats and animals, as well as some other authors like James Joyce, Vladimir Nabokov, Edgar Allan Poe, Kafka, Lewis Carroll comes up, Bruno Schultz. And our conversation, as far as Joyce's work is concerned, centers around three of her books, and those are Them, We Were the Mulvaney's, and The Accursed. And the way the conversation played out, uh, as I intended, I mean, I didn't want to speak exclusively about Joyce's books in case, I mean, somebody hadn't read them. But we talk, we do talk about these three books. And I believe I have read that 
Joyce recommends first-time readers to start with them or another of her books called Blonde. My favorite is The Accursed, which we talked about a bit, but it is this sprawling murder horror fantasy mystery story centered around Princeton 100-plus years ago. And it's just a festival of techniques and perspectives and... It's a pretty monumental feat to have pulled off so well. So Upton Sinclair is a character, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Mark Twain. There are, are plenty of other historical figures as well. There's also a, a demonic cat named Mungo Park that we talked a bit about in the episode. So Joyce is very active on Twitter. You can keep up with her at Joyce Carol Oates. She also has a Substack, which is easily located at joycecaroloats.substack.com. The only other thing that I ought to say is that I apologize if I talked too much because what Joyce has to say and what Joyce said is much more important than my own ramblings, but I was kind of giddy and really just couldn't keep my mouth shut as much as I should have. So now, all that being said, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Joyce. Of all of the people I've spoken with on the show, you're the only person where I really thought, how am I going to begin a conversation with her? But as I was looking at some of the titles of your books that I hadn't yet read, one jumped out at me and I immediately knew that we had a somewhat, I think, obscure taste in common. And that title was Because It Is Bitter and Because It Is My Heart, and which are two lines that I could not miss anywhere. So is Stephen Crane a, a favorite poet of yours? I, I know that many writers have been influential in your work, but what does Crane in particular mean to you? Well, to answer that question, I really have to sort of think about it for a while. I had read Stephen Crane's short stories and The Red Badge of Courage, you know, when I was a young writer in my 20s. And then probably I discovered his poetry somewhat belatedly because he's not that well known as a poet. So any influence that Crane would have had would would have would be on the level of craft. He was really quite an extraordinary writer of prose fiction. His sentences are very interesting. Just the way he tells stories, his narration the uh, extraordinary shifts in perspective are are very uh, kind of mesmerizing. I've taught some stories of his to my writing students a number of times. So it's possible that he's had an influence on me on that technical level rather than necessarily in terms of theme. Mm-hmm. If I had known we were going to talk about Stephen, I would have kind of refreshed my memory and looked at some of these stories again. He's got a story called The Little Regiment, for instance, which I haven't read in a while, but it, it's almost cinematic. It starts off with a view 
of a setting as if there's a camera and there's a sky and a natural world. And then it moves swiftly to some men, some young soldiers, and then it moves to two, particularly two men who are brothers. So it just kind of gracefully does this um, focusing work, kind of zooming in. And then we're with these two, but we always, we're always with an, an objective narrator who's omniscient who looks at them and moves back and forth. It is very cinematic. Of course, Stephen Crane had no idea that this is a cinematic kind of technique. Not to be too technical, but it's very much in contrast to a third-person restrictive perspective where you're always with one person, and you never know any more than the person knows, and you see everything through that person's eyes. So in, in writing... In contrast, maybe to, to nonfiction, but in writing, you have to choose a perspective, and that gives you the language. It gives you the way into the story. Well, please get as technical as you like. And a few things that you said have already jumped out at me. And one, I, I agree that he's he's not that well known as a poet, which is why I was so struck by the title of your book, because this particular poem is one of my favorites. Another thing that you said is you appreciate him in part for his narration. And that's something that really strikes me about his poetry, because they're often six, ten lines, but they often tell like little stories, they're vignettes. And then the third thing that you said that I agreed with is he's very important for his attention to craft and detail. And that's often the case for a poet, of course. But I thought that, oh, and then a fourth thing, you sent me a poem yesterday that I read and I think we'll get to it eventually. But in a similar way to Stephen Crane, this poem that you wrote, it's, I think, six lines, but it's very much a vignette and it, it's kind of a story in a way. But I thought that I might, I have it here. I thought that I might read that poem uh, that the that the title of your book comes from. And we might just talk about it a bit and see how it might relate to your work in various ways, if that sounds okay to you. Okay. So the poem is called In the Desert by Stephen Crane, naturally. And it goes, in the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter. Bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. First, you might want to tell me how you think of the poem on the whole, or maybe I could tell you just how I read it, whatever you think. Well, I think that Stephen, Stephen Crane is a, 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 be a beautiful craftsman he was a visionary, and he died very young, And but he started young. He was writing when he was uh, about 19 and 20 years old. He seemed to have grown up very quickly. Have you read Paul Auster's biography? 
Uh, no, no, I haven't. I've just read, I've read all of his poetry collections and then I read the Red Badge of Courage in middle school, but that's, that's it. He's got, yeah, you know, he's got, he's got wonderful short stories also. Well, Paul Oster, who is a writer, a friend of mine, Paul just loves Stephen Crane and he wrote quite a substantial, probably the definitive biography. Again, I don't, I could show it to you here. It's quite big, but um, I didn't know we were going to talk about this. Yeah, it's Stephen Crane to me is like a little like James Joyce. It's a vision and a perspective and a voice that's just uncanny. I feel that I really identify with him. The lens through which he looks at the world is just very, very powerful and vivid. And he's stoic. He's stoic and he has a good deal of dark humor, kind of suffused with this dark, playful, deeply ironic humor. And like the bride comes to a yellow sky is one of these stories. And the blue hotel, these are stories that are suffused with a kind of darkness. And the little regiment also is filled with a kind of almost preternatural wisdom as if this young man, very young, writing the story, were at the same time a kind of posthumous person looking, looking back on life. Hmm. Well, I think... Just to add some detail to something you said earlier, I, you said he died young. I think he designed, He died at, I think he was always pretty sickly, but he died when he was 27 of tuberculosis. And there is this, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's like this club of people who died when they were 27, great oh, artists. Of course. It was like 20. Jimi Hendrix, for instance. And I had, before this moment, it hadn't occurred to me that Stephen Crane's in the 27 club. Yeah, Janice. Janis Joplin, mm -hmm. Robert Johnson, mm -hmm. the, the blues singer. You're right. That is sort of uncanny. Yeah. I thought I would have thought he was 28. Oh, well, we can always look it up because we have the internet at our fingertips. I mean, you're probably right. I, I was going to say he died around when he was you know, 28. Did he die at 28? He did die at 28, so I was totally wrong. <laughs> Well, it's not totally wrong. It's almost... Yeah, he's close well, enough. And I can't remember when Keats died. You think he was only 24? Junkets. I, I thought it was funny. I learned that his name was pronounced, or he would have pronounced his name Junkets. Uh, okay, John Keats, who is another naturally terrific poet. He died when he... Also of tuberculosis, but he died when he was 25. Uh-huh. And again, I thought it was 24. but we're... Okay, So we're even. <laughs> but uh... did you, Excuse me. Did you know that Edmund White wrote a novel, Hotel de Dream, about Stephen Crane? No, I didn't. Stephen Crane and his wife, who was uh, had been the madam of a brothel. Yes, I read about that. Living together in the countryside in England and were befriended by Joseph Conrad. I think Henry James, yeah, quite quite amazing. Those are some good friends to have, <laughs> some interesting friends. But uh, returning to to this poem specifically, I think a a pretty obvious reading of the poem is that 
it's suggestive of how much we tend to dwell on and exaggerate and feed off of our problems and faults and shortcomings. And the list goes on. But maybe more relevant to our conversation is how writing can be seen as an absorption in oneself and the things that poison one's heart. So part of this fact, as I see it, uh, maybe it's not a fact, but it comes from the context of the poem in which he's sitting in a desert, which just suggests to me loneliness and possibility in a way. And it's so much like the blank page that one sits before as a writer. And I was just wondering if this is how you feel at all as a writer when you're sitting before an empty page, like you're alone um, confronting yourself. And I know that you sent I mean, when we were when we briefly corresponded yesterday, you don't view your writing as entirely about yourself, but in a sort of trivial sense, all of your writing comes from like confronting yourself and being alone in front of that page. Well, you're you're making it sound very dramatic and sort of starkly theatrical. I am. I never sit in front of a blank screen or a blank page. Okay. Never. I, I never have that experience. That's totally unknown to me. When I, if I'm going to write something, I spend a lot of time walking and running, literally running and walking out. In I live in a semi-rural suburban area. There are hills and lots of country roads here. There are even fields with sheep and cattle. So I spend a lot of time walking and running, and I'm thinking about a story that I'm going to tell. I'm thinking about characters, and I start to envision it in in a cinematic way in my mind, but without any language. I don't have a beginning sentence or paragraph. I'm seeing something like a movie, or it's like a vision, or it could be like a dream, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And then I come back home, and I write in longhand all sorts of long, long uh, notes, lots of pages. I, I'm not in my usual study now. I'm in another room, but I could show you all these folders and all these pieces of paper. I never confront a blank screen. By the time I start writing, I've already done a lot of writing in longhand, and I kind of conflate these notes and I move to the computer or the laptop to kind of consolidate things. So by the time I actually write an opening paragraph, I've already written it. And I, I know the ending of my novel. It takes a long time, but I'm assembling all these notes and outlines and so forth. Then I also, and not to be disagreeable or contrarian, I read the Stephen Crane poem very differently than you do. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, you use words like poison and bitter, or um, obviously there's a bitterness there, but I see the poem as a stark existential confrontation with reality. It's not sentimental. It's not obscured by pieties and platitudes like organized religion or one's own family or domestic 
uh, setting. I see it as a stark vision of the human predicament and that the creature who's eating its his heart has the insight, like Shakespeare's King Lear or Macbeth or Othello, has that insight to say something that's true, not because it's something that somebody wants him to say or it sounds good or pious or, or sentimental or uplifting or elevating, but because it happens to be true. I'm eating my heart because it's bitter. I like it because it's bitter because it's my heart. To me, that's a very noble and stoic, intransigent vision that I think belongs to the highest art. So that's my reading of the poem. That's why the novel's called that, because it is a holding a mirror up to American society and how tragic and unfair and cruel it can be. The novel's also about race relations decades ago, though it would be, it would be relevant right now. I haven't read that novel in quite a while, but it would still be relevant in 2023. Well, one, please be as disagreeable with me as you would like. That is welcome. But something that I think lends a lot of credence to your interpretation is this other poem of his that I really like. And I, I just quickly pulled it up and it's, uh, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. And that poem very much encapsulates this sort of existential situation where you're just you're confronted with the truth. It might be bitter, but that's just the way it is. So I, I very much see where you're coming from and it at least facially resonates with his other work. Oh, definitely. And those, those visions, which we could call almost existential in the, in the 20th century sense of the word, like the philosophical uh, sense of the word, uh, they, they recur in his writing, in his prose fiction also. So it's not just, you know, a random poem here or there, but that's basically his vision. He was a very interesting person, and but bio, biographical information doesn't really give us much context to understanding people. Like, I, I always feel any biographical information about me is very distracting and misleading because my, my literal historic biographical background might be shared by any number of other people in my family or my own brother, <clears throat> and yet not one of those other people is a writer or even cares about writing. I, I'm probably the only one in my family among cousins and my brother uh, I'm actually the only one really who has any interest in books. So why would my biography help to understand what I'm doing? You know, sometimes people who read a novel of mine, they will see that it's set in a place like my childhood, and that's true. But writers like philosophers, I think, or at least some writers, but I think all philosophers, a striving for the impersonality and the transcendental <clears throat> rather than <clears throat> rather than being mired down in the particular and the personal. 
And that's why some of us are drawn to philosophy. It's an exercise of a kind of disembodiment where you're leaving behind a trivia and pettiness of a domestic life that's not in any way distinguished or even interesting. But you're moving to another plane of something impersonal where people who are interested in philosophy can talk about philosophical ideas. It doesn't matter that I have brown eyes or that I have some Hungarian blood or or some Jewish background, you know, all that is is really irrelevant, and I think that's why people are drawn to philosophy. Hmm. Uh, when you when you talk about your biographical details, how they might be shared with so many other people, I think of another very powerful writer for me who is also not well known, but his name is Bruno Schultz. Bruno Schultz. Oh, yes, Bruno Schultz. Yes, yeah. and he is very Kafka-esque. He's very fantastical in a similar way to Crane, maybe. But he was just a small town, like grade school art teacher who didn't have any particularly interesting biography, yet he his the writing that came out of him was beautiful and unexpected and very... Uh, pun intended novel uh, for the time. Do you think though, if, if you're by, we don't have to talk much more about this, but what was happening in your head, your mental life, if somebody had a window into that growing up, that, that would tell them a lot about why, why you became a writer and what you write about, even if these, external third person sort of details would not well i think i think that our personalities are somewhat mysterious and why some of us choose to be any kind of writer uh artist or musician or anything is ultimately sort of mysterious and so people cast about for reasons you probably know from psychology that have been psychological experiments where people will will grope about to give reasons for something that they've done or said that the experimenter knows are not true, but the the person will make up an answer. So I think when we're interviewed about ourselves, some of us, rather than saying that we have no idea, which I think is almost a higher wisdom to say, I don't have any idea, we try to give some answer on, on another level. Like I was deeply influenced and really excited by reading Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. and Alice Through the Looking Glass when I was about eight or nine years old. So I think that's a plausible way of beginning with my um, curiosity about life and language and, and drawings because John Tenniel's drawings of Alice are, are, are wonderful, very haunting and, and very beautiful. That book was given to me by my grandmother, who was my, my father's mother, and she turned out to be, it was discovered later, she turned out to be Jewish, and her family was Jewish. But she didn't identify as Jewish, and no one in her family did at the time that that we knew her. It was only after she died, and a biographer was looking into my background, it was revealed that she was Jewish. Now, when you look at Bruno Schultz and also at Franz Kafka, you're sort of confounded and 
may be tempted to see that they are Jewish, European Jews, and that both of them are prophetic, especially Kafka, and kind of anticipating the rise of Nazism and the tremendous, almost surreal nightmare of the Holocaust that was coming. Kafka died before that happened, but Bruno Schultz was actually shot by a a Nazi. And he, I don't know as much about Bruno Schultz as I know about Kafka. It's possible that Bruno Schultz had read Kafka. I'm not sure. Do you know? I don't know. He he might have read Kafka. And when you say that is a little like Stephen Crane, well, he is... And he isn't because both of, both Kafka and Bruno Schultz are surrealists, and Stephen Crane was not. He was pretty much a realist. Not to not to make the, you know not to make too much of that. Mm-hmm. Something that jumps out at me though when you say that Bruno Schultz might have read Kafka is that Kafka has this very famous story, the metamorphosis, where, where he turns into um, a beetle. And Schultz has a very similar narrative in in which there are a number of things that happen, but one, his father, like, gradually turns into a shadow. Yeah, what's that called? Father's last something? He turns into a beetle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also turns into a shadow, I think. But there, he has... Some great. He has cinnamon shops. I think a book. Another one is the Street of Crocodiles. But he's a wonderful writer. I was also going to just comment that Alice in Wonderland uh, and those drawings was very formative for me. I was very lucky. My mother gave me uh, this very big annotated version. I don't know if you've you've seen this, but it's terrific. I probably see that. Yeah, I have, but I have my childhood book. Mm-hmm. It's not in this room, but it's it's the actual childhood book. Mm-hmm. But these these annotations were great. Like I remember one references uh, Burnt Norton, for instance, by uh, Eliot. So it was just a, a very eye-opening text for me. But something you said earlier, well, in reference to your own work, you said that you you envision things as cinematic without language, but then with reference to Crane, you said that the lens through which he viewed the world was very vivid. And I agree. I mean, one of the things that I love so much about his work, though, I think this generalizes to literature in general, even if he's a special case, is that despite how fantastically surreal so many of his poems are, even if he's not a surrealist, they're at the same time so very real and potent and filtered and distilled in a way that actual life um, never reaches. And here, finally, I get to introduce some of your your own work. There was a long sentence in your short story, Where Are You Going? How Have You Been? that gave me a good approximation of how to explain or one instance in which literature achieves this. And for our audience who doesn't know this story, the protagonist, her name is Connie. She's alone and practically cornered by a young man who she suspects has 
malicious intentions for her. And let me just find where I had this quote. So you wrote, Connie stared at him, another wave of dizziness and fear rising in her so that for a moment he wasn't even in focus, but was just a blur standing there against his gold car. And she had the idea that he had driven up the driveway all right, but had come from nowhere before that and belonged nowhere. And that everything about him and even about the music that was so familiar to her was only half real. And it was this lack of punctuation, but for two commas, the like the ideas of dizziness and blur captured by all the conjunctions, like the long running sentence and the repetition. It's like a distillation in 50 or so words, uh, just a concentration of a scene that in real cinematic sort of life would have countless visual, sensual, like oral inputs, so many of which would be irrelevant. But in this case, everything is there for a reason. And it all contributes to this super real sense of disorientation. Yes, yes. Well, that's the sort of thing you can do in prose fiction if if you're deeply immersed in one perspective. Like if you're writing also from the first person point of view, you can move from consciousness, a kind of objective consciousness, to something like a subjectivity, where you're you're moving from looking at the outside world to kind of moving inward to the person who's perceiving it. So if she's overcome by a sense of dread or apprehension or vertigo, you can mimic that with the language and with the sentence structures. And that's something that that makes prose fiction sometimes akin to music, that you're doing some things that when they're read aloud, they kind of communicate a meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think that you you also encapsulated this idea. It was, it's more about the idea than here than necessarily an instance of it in a sentence from another one of your books that I read, this one, Them. And uh, you said, you wrote from this, well, this is a third person perspective, but you wrote, like all lives, Jules was long and richly tedious, vexed with prodigious details of physical existence. He would have been ashamed to record were he writing his own story. His story would deal with the spirit exclusively. He thought of himself as pure spirit struggling to break free of the morass of the flesh. He thought of himself as spirit struggling with the fleshly earth, the very force of gravity and death. And I mean, there's a lot going on here, but one of the things that came out for me again is just this idea that in writing, it's a distillation and you don't have to include the prodigious details of physical existence you can really bring out just the salient details to capture the pure spirit struggling and yeah that's so interesting mm-hmm. it's nice that you've you've um, discovered those excerpts which i haven't looked at in years i mean obviously i wrote it but i, I wouldn't be able to remember it you know just sort yeah, of yeah, it, it's it's been uh, a long time. Well, here is, here we come to. A, I'm sorry for giving you a barrage of your own writing, <laughs> but here though I think is 
another thing that might lead to a more natural question um, about the sorts of things that we've been discussing, but also in them, there's there's a very interesting device. And I was confused until the end of the book, actually. So you're a character in the book, uh, them. And then in only in the afterward, do you realize, do you write that this was uh, fictional? But one of the characters in them, Maureen, she writes a letter to a fictional version of you. And um, what she writes was... I used to get dizzy in your class a lot. Why did you think that book about Madame Bovary was so important? Excuse my co-host. Um, why did you think that book about Madame Bovary was so important? All those books. Why did you tell us they were more important than life? They are not more important than my life. And what I wanted to do was to echo this question that you posed to yourself. Uh, I don't know how many years ago that you wrote this book, but why are books more important than life? And I have the sense that Crane would have said the exact same thing about poetry or books. Well, personally, I don't think that, that one is more important than the other. I think that books are not in, I don't think that literature is in some sort of uh, contrast to life it is life, you know, like your dreams are you and your dreams are just as real as your conscious remarks that you're making, you know. You look in the mirror and see a, a face, you know, you're seeing it sort of in your, <clears throat> you're seeing it, that image in your brain, but it's real, it is real. So Maureen is a character in a novel and novels are dramas, a novel is like an extended play or movie based upon conflict. Characters are in conflict with one another and they debate one another. I don't think that Maureen is correct. And I'm inventing Maureen anyway. She's maybe a composite character, but mostly she's imagined. And the Joyce Carol Oates in the novel is certainly a fictitious character. Mm-hmm. So I'm a formalist, and I and I, I like to experiment with the forms of fiction. Right. And I think of I think of life, and maybe this is not a philosophical predilection, but I think of life as a, as a sequence of playful problem solving. We're solving problems in a in essentially a playful way. Now, the forms of philosophy seem much more limited. We have the dialogues of Socrates, which are really amazingly inventive and, and theatrical. And just the fact that there are dialogues and rather than just essays or you know, arguments, that's, that's unusual. And then Nietzsche's aphorisms and maybe Spinoza's way of writing, a kind of pseudoscience or encyclopedia. Although not that many forms in philosophy, mostly the philosopher is talking in his own voice and he's, he's setting forth an argument. But in, in literature, you have all kinds of forms. I mean, there are many, many forms of poetry, many, many forms of prose, 
different kinds of novels. I like to write in a realistic mode much of the time, but sometimes I write in a gothic mode. Mm -hmm. So when I start writing, I choose a form and a language and a mode of fiction that seems the best suited to tell a certain story. So you said sometimes you write in a, in a gothic mode. I read your book, The Accursed, which is, I think, uh, easily the best book I've read in, in five, in, 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 that I can remember in a very long time. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I loved that book so much is the style, the the different styles that take. I mean, you you write from the perspective of Upton Sinclair on on one page, and then on another page from a child who has been uh, abducted into this fantastic bog kingdom. I mean, there's just there's there's so much going on. I mean. Mark Twain is a is a Sherlock Holmes becomes a real character and he has his own distinct voice. But we'll get back to hopefully we'll 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 get to some of those concerns. For now, though, you mentioned the forms of philosophy are limited and becoming much more limited. You're you're right. You're very right because now they're increasingly resembling science articles. But you said you're a formalist. That's that's interesting. It. Um, I, I learned a a new word recently, uh, retrodict. To predict is to like. I guess I'm using the word in its. I was going to reuse the word in the definition, which isn't good practice. Is to maybe guess that something's going to happen in the future. To retrodict is to based on information in the present predict that something happened in the past. Uh, uh, yeah, so you roughly get the idea, but. In them, something else that, more, if I'm recalling correctly, there's a quote that stuck out in my memory that Maureen says to the fictional you, or you say to Maureen that she reports in her letter, and it's that literature gives form to life. And that's exactly what a formalist would say. And going back to that little excerpt that I read from from Connie, from the book, from the story about Connie, you are giving form to her consciousness by the way, through the way that you wrote this passage. And talking about a, a different dimension of Crane's work and how it might connect with your own, you said that something that you really appreciated about his work was his craft and technique. And in this poem, one very, I mean, it's a common, I don't, it's not a particularly sophisticated technique that he makes great use of is repetition. And he repeats bitter um, three times <laughs> in the poem. And it's what you repeat, in, or no, it's not what you repeat in the title. But how do you see the repetition in it is bitter, bitter, he answered, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. How do you see it working? I mean, one thing that I see working in conjunction with the repetition of bitter is the consonants 
from the b b in but because because bitter 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 but how do you see that working in the poem as a whole gosh i don't know how i would answer that poetry is is for the ear also he was writing these short enigmatic poems like nobody else was writing it was sort of as I say, he's so he's quite unique. He was writing a kind of poetry that people hadn't heard before. Uh, Emily Dickinson, around the same time, was writing most unusual poetry, which mimics the voice. She had a, a, lots of dashes in her poems, which are very short. And I, I don't know that she read Stephen Crane. Um, I actually don't know whether she read him, and I don't know whether he read her. But we know from um, scholarly evidence that that Emily Dickinson didn't she didn't write the poems the way they sound. They were composed very carefully, sometimes over a period of months or even years. She would have a line, and she would take that line and put it in a letter. And she may take an image and put it in a in a poem. So her poetry gives the illusion of being dashed off with these literal dashes, and yet she composed them very carefully. Now we don't really know why some people write in the voice that they write in. My friend Paul Muldoon writes a very un, most unusual Muldoon kind of poetry. It's extremely self-referential and playful and like a riddle. And Paul said, he said, I don't know why I write this way. I can't write it any other way. So sort of getting in the air, getting in the realm of this mystery of personality. Like, I don't know why I write the way I do to the extent to which I can control it. You know, some kind of prose fiction is exciting to me when I read it. Uh, other, other forms of prose fiction are not interesting. Like I can open a book and read a few lines, and I know what I really want to keep reading. Sometimes I'm really excited, and uh, Emily Dickinson spoke of the hairs on your head stirring when you know it's, it's poetry. And why that is, I don't know. It's probably the same with music and composers, and some people are thrilled by some music, and they just want to hear more and more of it. Others are not interested at all. Why that is, I don't know. You said a couple of minutes ago that you don't know why you write the way that you do, or maybe you don't further analyze this, but in any given instance, of let's say there's a technique repetition do you find yourself constantly or not constantly consciously thinking i want to achieve this effect in this sentence here's my toolkit of uh, techniques this is the one that i'm going to employ here or is it more of this it's just instinctive from all of the reading and writing that you've done that it just happens well it's intuitive i you never really are thinking about those things for instance if um, 
you know, when Chopin was creating his wonderful short etudes and his nocturnes and his preludes, he didn't sit down and say, now I want to have a, a short piece that's just going to be heart-rending and very beautiful, and it will be known as a Chopin, you know, um, prelude. I think he just sat down and he wrote, he composed the music he was hearing, and he was trying to encapsulate a, mo a mood, and it's very beautiful and also very evan evanescent. It's not like writing a symphony or writing War and Peace where you're, you're taking on an enormous, ambitious canvas. But I, I'm working on a novel right now, so each, each chapter is an emotional unit. It's like I would compare it to a one-act play, and I would compare my writing to some kind of Shakespearean dramas where you have scenes, like you mentioned the accursed. Each chapter has a scene, or maybe more than one scene, but the novel moves along scenes. The first scene is in Woodrow, President Woodrow Will, he's president of Princeton University in 1906. And someone comes to visit him, who will then turn out to be in the last chapter of the novel. Uh, a very light-skinned black man comes to talk to him. So the accursed literally refers to the white ruling class of Christian, good, good Christian people who were living at that time, who were well aware that former enslaved people, black people, or African Americans, as they may have been called at the time, that they were, that they were really at risk from rising racism, the Ku Klux Klan, and violence perpetrated upon the formerly enslaved by the white supremacists. So the, the accursed re refers to that ruling class of which Woodrow Wilson was one. And the person who comes to appeal to Woodrow Wilson is appealing to him as somebody with a good deal of influence. Today we have influencers. So we, we, we would hope to have political and spiritual leaders like President Biden or President Obama, uh, sort of at the top of a political hierarchy, who are models to their people of good behavior, of uh, decency, and Christian charity when Christianity was more important than it is now. We're, but we're literally living in a time in 2023 when we have many political leaders who are not really leaders, they're sort of politicians, and they're not, they're not teaching in that way of the model Christian leader any, anymore. So the accursed was meant to be speaking to the present time as well as 1906. So I guess I've got sort of drifted off into talking about the Trump, you know, dark, the dark era or the dark, dark ages, sort of like the medieval ages where we have a really polarized America. 
and writing about that is really quite a, a challenge. I think many people don't really want to do it. It's somehow easier to go into the past. Well, writing about polarization is not new for you. I'm thinking of a, lo- a line in in Them, which is a book we've already been talking about. And it was actually, I was thinking about it because of its relation to the technique we were just discussing, uh, repetition. But the, the line that I have in mind is, the whites looked at the whites and the negroes looked at the negroes and the whites looked at the negroes and the negroes looked at the whites. Uh, but so you've been writing about polarization for a very long time, but something that stuck out at me about what you just said is you, you used the word evanescent and our, I think it was the perfect word for what you were saying. And our mutual friend, Ernie Lepore, uh, he and I were talking and he told me that as you and I spoke, uh, I would be amazed by the words that you pulled out at just the right time that were the, the perfect words. And so that's funny. You also said intransigent earlier, and I like the word intransigent. But speaking of the accursed, and since we've been discussing various influences or potential influences on your writing, I had a hunch that I wanted to ask you about because I know that the book you did a lot of research on a lot of research on this book, and it's very historically informed. <laughs> but I wanted I was curious about Edgar Allan Poe and how it might have shown itself in your work. So I I am a fan of Nabokov, and as I was reading Lolita for the first time, I noticed that he included lines from Annabelle Lee, that poem, in, I think it was like the opening chapters. And I went and consulted the poem and saw, yes, these these are lines from the poem. And I thought that that was interesting. And as I was reading The Accursed, certain lines suggested to me that you were doing something sort of similar. I think one of them was, and I wrote it down, it was Annabelle, Annabelle, a sepulchral tone. And I knew that there were tons of Annabelle repetitions in Poe's poem, Annabelle Lee. And I could have sworn that the word sepulcher was in there somewhere. So then I looked up the poem and I found a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee, so that her highborn kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. So I was wondering, was I was I right about this connection with Annabelle in the story and Poe? Well, it might have been sepulchre is a word that does occur quite a bit in Gothic writing. Mm. I, I even have a story with that title. I don't really know whether it's a direct reference to Poe in my writing. I've certainly taught Poe. Poe suffuses the novel I'm working on now. Um, somebody, I'm working on a novel about a man who very much likes. Edgar Allan Poe and, and has read his work and been influenced by him. And particularly the uh, kind of rom- gothic romance of a man who's attracted to women who are not mature physically. Poe was attracted to women, particularly to very young women, like he married his cousin. I think you know that, who was 14. Mm-hmm. He first met this 
Virginia Clem, he met her when she was seven. And I don't remember how much older he, he was. He was. I mean, he wasn't 40 years older, but he may have been 20 years older. But, you know, when meeting a seven-year-old girl, most men would not be attracted to that girl, that girl in a romantic way. I mean, it seems a little bizarre. Nebukov was working with this odd kind of sensibility also, and Lewis Carroll was attracted to very young girls. I don't think it's pedophilia. Um, I would think it's some sort of uh, lack of maturity in the man. He doesn't feel that he can confront a woman his own age. She would expect more of him. She would be more physically developed. So it's it's a kind of a, a somewhat morbid subject too, because Poe also was attracted to the idea of necrophilia. Oh, really? That, yeah, well, the House of Usher, the fall of the House of Usher, the Usher's sister, yeah, and, and Ligeria. Um, Ligeria is a beautiful woman, of course, very pale, and she um, she's dead, I believe. This is sort of the go- the Gothic image of the female who who doesn't reproduce. You're you're not going to have a normal relationship with this female. She's not going to get pregnant. You're not going to have a child. So it's, it's sort of a trope or um, a predilection of romantic fiction and romantic poetry. Christabel. Anyway, not you know, not to go into the subject too deeply, but when you're working with Poe, you're in that Gothic twilight where there's no historical present. There is no president of the United States. He doesn't make a reference to the time he's living in. Gothic fiction and poetry takes place in a never-never land. Like the Telltale Heart may have been written at a time when Poe was living. Poe was living in Philadelphia and, and Baltimore and maybe New York City. I can't remember exactly. He, had, he, he was living in Virginia. He went to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, but none of that's, none of that's in his writing. So in some ways, he's the antithesis of me as a writer because I have a whole lot of the real world. I'm more like James Joyce, by putting a real, a recognizable world with street names and, you know, buildings and things that are very real, you find in Joyce's Ulysses. And everything that Joyce writes is just kind of steeped in reality, and I'm, I'm attracted to that. Poe is the opposite. It is taking place in a never-never land, and I, I'm attracted to both, really. The accursed is kind of a mixture of both. The only thing of Joyce's that I haven't read is Finnegan's Wake. Is that something that you have read? Well, I'm, I'm sure you've read it, but have you read it yeah. very close? Oh, you haven't? I have read parts of it, and I've read Anne Olivia Plurabell. So, I mean, I've, I've read parts of it. How do you feel about, about Finnegan's Wake? 
Well, Finnegan's Wake is probably the natural development of a writer who's becoming more and more uh, audio. He was Joyce was so interested in, in the music of speech, and I guess Finnegan's Wake is uh, like a dream state. All these different voices that are going on in Joyce's head. He may even have been influenced by his own daughter, Lucia, who was schizophrenic, and she was babbling in schizophrenic uh, language, which could be very poetic. This kind of chatter and babble of the um, not quite conscious that you find in Finnegan's Wake. If I had time, I could learn Finnegan's Wake. I would have to read it with source books. Right. You can't really do Finnegan's Wake by yourself. Yeah. Uh, I taught Ulysses, and I would spend like six weeks on Ulysses with graduate students. Right. Ulysses is teachable, and I mean, each, each chapter has a point, and each chapter has drama, and something happens. It starts off, the first chapters are pretty realistic. Blaze is and is there, and Stephen Dedulis is there. They have a scene. They t- they talk. There's reference to Stephen's mother who's died. Blazes Boylan says, Stephen, whose mother is beastly dead. And that's a theme that goes through the whole novel. And uh, Leopold Bloom has a child named Rudy who has died also. So that's pretty much like a realistic novel. But Finnegan's Wake is an, an area that I haven't really... I haven't really investigated, so I can't say much about it. Yeah, sure. Your point about reading Finnegan's Wake with instruction, though, is well taken and might sound foreign to a reader who hasn't read Joyce before. But the first time I read Ulysses, I couldn't really follow it, but I I could appreciate the language and the technique. But then the second time I read it, I went chapter by chapter with Harold Bloom's book, on Ulysses, and that just totally opened it up for me. Well, the best way to read Ulysses is with other people. As I said, I spent six weeks on it. So with my graduate students at the University of Windsor, we read aloud a lot because it's very, very uh, musical and beautiful. It's like the celebration of the Mass, the High Mass, and Joyce was Catholic. And he was was celebrating human speech. He said, actually, he actually, he said literally, I wrote Ulysses to preserve the speech of my father and his friends. Wow. Hmm. So that's very beautiful. That's one of the reasons that people write to commemorate. I, I think I can, I can join commemoration with problem solving and, and creating interesting forums. Yeah, well, that well, first thing, just about the beauty of Joyce's writing. I mean, one of my favorite adjectival phrases of all time. He, he describes s- smoke as woolly smoke in Dubliners. And that just in the, in the moment, in the story, it's just a perfect description of, of smoke as woolly. Sort of like, I mean, the, this isn't quite the same, but in a tweet, you referred to Pins, my cat, as a powder gray kitty. And I had I just always think of her as gray, but powder gray was just the perfect uh, way to describe. It's like a powdered powdered paint. But speaking of commemoration, before we get back to our thread that we were on 
where we were discussing technique, which I want to get back to when, well, here, here's what my question is, why you put uh, odes to another author in your work. So even if, even if you weren't directly referencing Poe, as I thought you might have been with the character Annabelle and the use of the word sepulcher in the accursed, you still named your book because it is bitter and because it is my heart. And one thing that I was thinking was it might be a matter of paying respect. So commemoration. And then another possibility is you just know that you're making the cognoscenti among your readers, a happy audience because like seeing that title uh, made me very happy. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know this, but I have a book called Wild Nights, and and that is um, giving voice to s- several American writers. Uh, Hemingway is, I think, the last one in the book, but Edgar Allan Poe, Henry James, Emily Dickinson. Um, I think I'm leaving. Oh, Henry James. So did I mention him? I, I didn't put I didn't put Robert Frost in. I, I think I wrote that later. But each story is about pretty much about the last days of that life, like Paul and Hemingway, like the very last day of his life, and as he's moving to commit suicide. So that was really very very wonderful and very much fun and playful for me to do, because these are writers I admire very much. And there's a sort of dark humor to all of the stories also. Oh, Mark Twain. I forgot Mark Twain. Yeah. Wild Nights. I, I don't want to make this about me at all because the degree of our writing, we're, we're not even in the same universe. But I will often use another author's name somewhere if I learned something from them or one of their techniques or plot points or something is coming out in the work, because I want, if, if a reader sees it and I don't want them to think that I have like, like I'm trying to steal something and not pay homage, if that makes sense. Well, yes, you have to be very careful because some people just don't, don't know that. Like on Twitter, there are parody accounts that are very funny and playful, but roughly half the comments are as if they're real. I mean, there's a satirical uh, Twitter account called New York Times Pitch Bot, and it's sort of making fun of the New York Times, typical articles, and columnists like Maureen Dowd. And it's basically very, very satirical almost like Jonathan Swift. But half of the comments don't get it. And they get kind of angry. And they're kind of, you know, angry about it. So you have to be we all have to be very careful about irony and satire because most readers do not get it. Yeah, I saw this tweet that you had yesterday that made me made me chuckle. I think it was this very account that you're talking about. But Returning to our discussion of technique that was sort of inspired by Stephen Crane, you sent me this poem yesterday that you wrote, and I want to talk about it. I also want to talk about another Stephen Crane poem 
because they're they're intertwined in a way that I see. I wonder if, if you'll see it as well. First, I'm going to read this poem from Crane. Do, does the title ring a bell? It's Many Red Devils Ran From My Heart. I probably have read that at some I'm point. Sure I don't okay. really know. Okay. So the poem goes, Many red devils ran from my heart and out upon the page. They were so tiny, the pen could mash them, and many struggled in the ink. It was strange to write in this red muck of things from my heart. Wow, that's a terrific poem. I love yeah. that poem. I've never read it. I don't, oh, I really? Don't... Yeah, yeah it's, it's really wonderful. Actually, I, I'm, it's very short. I'll read it again in case our audience didn't totally catch it. Um, Many red devils ran from my heart and out upon the page. They were so tiny the pen could mash them, and many struggled in the ink. It was strange to write in this red muck of things from my heart. And we'll get to your poem in, in a few minutes. But... We'll put the cat on the cat. Oh, the cat? Hold on. I, um, I moved the screen a little bit. Oh, there she Zanch. No, this is Lilith. She's a smoked calico. Um, I anyway, can see the calico a little bit. It's a little she's dim. My, uh, my familiar in the sense that she's always with me, almost always. She lies right next to my laptop and her tail switches over the keyboard. Mm. And it's really hard. It's hard to write. I'm not getting as much work done because her tail is kind of. Yeah, I, both of my animals are my familiars. Yeah, yeah. Do you do they accompany you like at other parts of the house or like oh, yeah. if you're? They'll, they are with me wherever I go. Uh, the dog is a Vishla. Are you familiar with them? No, no. They're they're called Velcro dogs because once you get them, they just stick to you like Velcro. So if I go to the bathroom, he joins me. Uh, but I don't know how you feel. It would be very difficult for me to be as productive as I am if I didn't have them with me at all the time, all the time, because I, I would feel very alone, but I don't when like the cat's on my lap 95% of the time. Yeah. Well, I, they're almost like therapy animals. I, I, I sort of joke about the, my cats being my therapy animals, but then you, you know, you, we are risking the terrible loss of losing them. That's the other side of it. I have a friend who said he had a dog once and a dog died. And he said, I will never ever have another dog because I can't go through that again. So that's kind of scary. Yeah. My, her sister uh, was, uh, her name was Isolt after from Tristan and Isolt because I am a big fan of Arthurian um, lore. So I've read all of those books and these cats, they're called Cornish Rexes. They're from Cornwall, and Isol is the princess of Cornwall in the Arthurian legend. But two years ago, I came home from being out with my dog, and she was just lying screaming on the ground. And I had no, I thought she'd like maybe broken her back or something, but I took her to the vet, and she's only like seven years old. And they said she had a blood clot and 
like her because of how long it had been there we were out for like two hours like she just couldn't recover so we had to put her down i had to put her down right there and yeah that was the worst day of my life and i was like bawling for a week so that because i've never had a uh, a connection with an animal like with that cat so it was very sad speaking speaking of which uh before we get back to stephen crane in the accursed uh yes it's in the accursed there's a cat named mungo park (laughs) and i found this very funny i i mean we haven't talked at all about we were the mulvaney's but that is the book that made me realize because i didn't know much about you as a person just from reading that book I could tell how important animals were to you because they play a major role in this family's I mean, there's one very tragic scene for me. I like, it almost brought me to tears. There's, and sorry if I'm talking too much, but there's this scene where I think the dog's name is Silky, but one of the, the sons, they had, they were like, a, they had a special bond and the son leaves the house and Silky just like waits on the driveway and then like eventually like dies of heartbreak. And I was, um, that made me very sad to read it. It actually reminded me of this beautiful, similar line in the remains of the day where the main character realizes that like he had had one chance of falling in love and he missed it. And yeah. so it, touched. Was, it was a very sad moment reading it. But anyway, in the accursed, uh, Mungo Park is like this demon, demon cat, essentially. And one of the sailors like throws him off of the boat in this, I think it's Antarctic expedition. And as I read it, I like my, uh, my heart skipped a beat. I was very like distraught. Uh, but I think the sailor says, don't shed a tear for Mungo Park. And even though he threw the cat overboard, like the next morning, it's in the captain's like den, just purring and it's very creepy. Well, that's right. Mungo Park himself was this explorer. He was very, uh, we use the word intransigent, but I think those, those explorers of past centuries were really extraordinary people. And it's like cats, you know, with more than one life. Yeah. Well, okay. Back to this poem that I just read uh, from. Oh, from... yes, that's a wonderful poem. Many, many red demons came out of my heart. Yes. Yeah. So one thing that I admire about this poem technically is the mirror of poetic closure, which is opening. And many red devils ran from my heart and out upon the page is a really striking line or or pair of them if if we want to be loose but another striking line is the opening of them which is one warm evening in august 1937 a girl in love stood before a mirror and when i read that i thought this line is perfect and this is quite a broad question but You've written a number of novels. How do you go about determining what perhaps the most important line of the book, I mean, the first one, is going to be? Is this an instance in which the use of technique or the decision you make isn't entirely intuitive? It's something that you might spend 
hours on just figuring out what what goes into the calculus here? Well, that's a very good question because I do spend a lot of time trying to get the right opening. And then I have the right ending, I mean, the right from my point of view. I try to have some sort of triangular structure between the opening sentence of a, of a novel, the title, and the last sentence. So where we were, the Mulvaney's has the same title. I mean, it has the beginning and the ending and the title are all the same. Like we, when we were the Mulvaney's, you know, like we were the Mulvaney's. So, um, I, I don't remember exactly the phases that that went through, but it does. It takes a while of thinking, and I spend a lot of I spend a lot of time walking. Do you like to walk or run? Every morning, I walk for two hours with the dog. You're kidding! Two hours? Yeah. Oh my gosh! That's I, when I'm, I. That's when I read. I, I, so I'm, I'm not so much thinking. I just read for two hours every morning while I'm walking. Well, how do you read? I mean, on when my, you uh, on my iPhone, I just hold it this way and read in the landscape mode. I can't believe that. I thought maybe you had audio headphones or something. No, I do not like. I can't. I can't do audiobooks because you can't pay attention to the punctuation, or, or the paragraph breaks, and that's. When you're walking, you're not looking around. No, I'm not. I take the same path every day. It's about the reading. Hours is a long time. So the dog gets a lot of exercise. Yeah, he needs a lot of exercise. Do you take him out again later on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we go out at least four times a day. But the the long one is the morning one. So this morning, I'm, I was reading physics, though, so not literature, but... Uh, you have such an interesting mind. Obviously, there's a whole deep cavern, or your your in your your math mode, and I can't I can't follow people there. I of all the courses I took in all my academic career, I got all A's and everything except logic. I got a B plus, <laughs> and I still remember it was my first semester at Syracuse University. I think if I took that course now, I could maybe get an A, but I just may, I just sort of demoralized by it. I never was really comfortable with math. Well, if you need a tutor, I'd be happy to help. My worst subject was always history. This might be somewhat interesting to you, but I've, I've interviewed a number of historians on the show, and something I've realized is that my problem with history was that I treated it or thought about it in high school where I wasn't thinking about it that much as just learning a constellation of disconnected facts. But when you treat it from a literary perspective and think of it as narrative and stories, and that's what ties everything together, it makes history come alive. And that much must make it, it makes it a lot easier to think about it and to remember it, uh, yeah, well, the different theories of history, you know, this philosophy of history, you know, one, one philosophy of history is sort of like um, the great man theory, you know, which prevails, I think, even today, where history is a matter of war and emperors and generals and big, big events. 
like Napoleon and, and War and Peace, like the great man, then the other theory of history is no, not at all. It's forces. Could be climate change or the economy or trade routes or something that's not really individuals, not, not Napoleon at all, but these big forces that come along. So we're sort of moving into that now, I guess, with climate change and migration all around the world. We will see that it's these forces rather than individuals. So Hitler and Mussolini and, and Trump and Stalin, the kind of forces, they're, they're sort of created by the forces that are of that time. I don't, I don't necessarily believe in one theory or the other. I mean, maybe both of them are, both of them are relevant. But if you think of history in those terms as some sort of drama, like evolution, it's much more interesting. Hmm. No, that's that's totally true. And I, I just noticed that it's it's funny how I can remember a novel so much better than a an episode from history. And I think it's because I have a bias that a novel is going to be interesting. There's going to be a narrative, but with history, it's just random. There isn't somebody... Uh, and so uh, who you're reading, I mean, historians are... right. I mean, right. there were great works of history. Right. That's what I'm, I'm saying. I, I, I don't think I was considering the possibility that a really good historian can weave a narrative out of things and put cause and effect together and make it engrossing. Well, you may have had history teachers in high school who were really not that, that good, you know, they're not, that, not that capable. Yes, that's that's possible. So I really, I really, I wasn't expecting, but I really appreciated this notion of triangular structure. I'm curious, two things: Do you take the same attitude to a short story, where there's this connection between first line, last line, and title, and then also, is this the sort of thing that you would teach a student about in a writing workshop, or not so much? Well, definitely, though, I have the same structure with a, with, a, with a short story. Yeah, it's the same thing. So I, I really, I need to get the title. Sometimes I'll change the title later, but I really have to have something in progress, like a tentative title. Well, with my students, I don't talk about these uh, formal things very much. They're, they're working on another level, and they're trying to tell a story, and I don't, um, no, we don't get we don't get into things like that. It's probably more like teaching arithmetic than it would be like teaching calculus or math or higher math. You know, like if your philosophy of math, say you were teaching introduction to logic, maybe you do that, you have to teach introduction. You're not going to start off teaching Saul Kripke or somebody, you know, so, no, my students are on a certain level, and I try never, ever to make them feel demoralized. Like, I work with students at Princeton, especially who are writing senior theses. They're writing novels, many of them, sometimes at NYU. And I just 
with them because it's like a tutorial, I will definitely make make them, that sounds a little harsh, I will suggest strongly that they keep like rewriting the first chapter. If I don't think it's good enough, I have them do it over again. So I tell them that until they get a strong first chapter, it's, there's no point in going on because it's going to be lame or weak or not worth it. And you can't go on until you get a good, strong opening. But with the ordinary workshops, they're working on a different level. I, I, I'm very interested in this approach where you have your students make sure that they have a strong first chapter because your approach and the way that you described it earlier where you take copious notes and you're never confronted with a blank page, it really contrasts with this other school of thinking about writing that I'll loosely refer to as the pantsers who are flying by the seat of their pants where they just start writing and they have the blank page and then they keep going and their first draft sort of serves as the outline that they then go back and adjust. So it's, it's a very different sort of strategy. Well, it's not too different because I do that first draft in my head. I told you I went out walking and, and running, you know. So I, I have something like a first draft, but I don't write it down. It, writing that way is very, very exhausting and destructive. It's self-destructive. It's not a good way to write. Not at all. What happens is that a young writer or an, an emerging writer will spend so much energy, hours and days and weeks and months on an unpublishable manuscript that hasn't been revised at all. So you can spend years and years revising something like that. It's almost like a tombstone. It's something that will, will fall on top of you. As soon as people start writing something down, there's a, a paralyzing semi-permanence to it. They start looking at the first lines that they wrote and try to fix them up. They, the mistake is putting those first lines down at all. You shouldn't even begin writing until you've thought about it quite a bit. So people who, I know friend, I have I know people who have been working 20 years on a book and they're never going to finish it. It's very, very sad. I don't even like to think about it. <laughs> Are there exceptions to the rule among your successful and very brilliant writer friends who follow this model that you just described as being very destructive? Or do all of the successful, talented writers that you know have some, a process that's at least roughly analogous to yours where they have a, a good idea of what the novel is going to be in its entirety before they start writing? Well, I wouldn't know that much about living writers. I know more about writers no longer with us because we know about their, you know, their manuscripts are in, in libraries and scholars have 
I've written to them. Well, I'll just tell you that I can't talk too much longer because I'm getting a little tired, but there are two ways of writing. And I, I love both of them, and I admire the products of both. One is James Joyce, extremely cerebral, but also sensuous and, as I said, interested in the audio, is interested in the music of the voice. Joyce is very cerebral. He plotted out his novels, like Ulysses is, has the grid of Ulysses, of the Odyssey, so we, each chapter is pretty much has a, it's analog in, in the Odyssey. And Leopold is Odysseus. He's wandering around and he comes back home to Penelope, his wife. So Joyce had that structure and he worked on it for seven years. And each day he worked on it. Like Chuck Close, you know, he used to do his, his huge portraits with little tiny uh, parts of the canvas. You're like, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to work on the third chapter of Ulysses and I'm, I'm going to you know, do this and that. And all these themes are braided together. That was James Joyce's way of writing. Now, in contrast is D.H. Lawrence. D.H. Lawrence was a great, extraordinary genius, maybe more like Mozart. He could sit down with a pen and paper and start writing. And he would write and write and write and write, and he could write a manuscript like 300 pages long. There are letters of his where he says, I'm working on this novel. I don't know what it's about. That became Women in Love. Now, with Lawrence is such a genius that it's almost irrelevant to talk about him the way it's irrelevant to talk about Mozart. You can talk more about what James Joyce did. There are some short, short stories by Catherine Mansfield that she wrote right out. She wrote very quickly. And once in a while you can do it, but most people can't. They can't do it. And what they do is not, it's not of significance. So anybody can sit down and write a novel straight out. So you write 400 pages. It's probably not going to be published. And if it were, it would be forgotten. You know, you have to, you have to have some sort of plan or some plot, almost calculation for what you're doing. It must be the same thing in math. My friends in philosophy say that often cranks and sort of crazy people are always writing their, they're writing their philosophy of life. So it's like a manuscript of 300 pages and it's completely worthless. You know, they, somebody wrote it out and somebody spent time on it, but nobody even reads it. I mean, everybody gets these, I guess, in philosophy departments. Maybe math, too. There are these people who have these ideas. Anyway, when D.H. When, uh, Lawrence would finish one of these manuscripts, then he would, re, I suppose he reread it, but he would rewrite the whole thing. Not He didn't revise. He rewrote. There are three Lady Chatterleys, and they're all different. 
I mean, they have some, the characters are the same, but the tone of the uh, style, um, they're different. Like there are three Lady Chatterleys. The one that we read is the best one. But the first Lady Chatterley is interesting. Then uh, Women in Love, I have not read any other, the other versions, but the one that we have is just brilliant. So there are people like D.H. Lawrence, as I say, who are much more rare. They can't, they can't revise, and he would never outline. He couldn't write the way Joyce was writing. Yet nonetheless, his work is extraordinary. He's a very great writer. I think most people try to combine the two. They have an idea, they have an outline, and then they try to do this other sort of writing. I try to control it as much as I can with lots of notes. When I'm actually writing a scene, it's more like D.H. Lawrence. But when I'm planning the whole novel, it's more like James Joyce. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. It's really been a treat. Thanks so much for your time and, and talking with me today. Well, you sound like such an interesting person. I'm sorry that I don't live closer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice to meet you. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart. <laughs>